Dirty History is produced by Muckraker Media. So, if you value this show and podcast in general as an educational resource, please consider passing it on to another person. The best way we can spread is by word of mouth. That said, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on whatever platform you get this show on. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get the show, please subscribe and review. The same goes for Muckraker Media. If you like this show, there are others on the network tailored to your interest. Go check them out. MuckrakerMedia.org. M-U-C-K-R-A-K-E-R Media. This simple act, four minutes of your time, will help the show more than any dollar amount could, and it will help you curate a podcast feed you're proud of. So once again, wherever you get Dirty History, please subscribe, like, review, and be sure to check out Muckraker Media. With that, on with the show. This is the final episode of our series on psychedelics, and we are concluding it with a substance known as psilocybin. Now, psilocybin is found in nature, and like mescaline to peyote and San Pedro, we have psilocybin to certain mushrooms. And like mescaline, psilocybin was used for hundreds of years by the indigenous people of Latin America as a ritual, a sacrament. In fact, the Aztecs referred to psychedelic mushrooms as, quote, the flesh of the gods. Like mescaline, psilocybin was prohibited, and the use was brutally suppressed by inquisitors of the Roman Catholic Church. And on the other hand, like LSD, psilocybin was used by psychiatrists in the 1950s and early 60s to treat depression, anxiety, and alcoholism. It was viewed as a, as a miracle substance by the psychiatric establishment of the 50s and early 60s. And that's why it's the conclusion of this episode. It bears a resemblance to mescaline and LSD, the substances that came before, but yet it stands on its own and it is a marker of both the triumphs of psychedelic research and the depths upon which individuals could perhaps push the envelope too far. And what I mean by that is, is there are certain individuals in this story who are there at the collapse of this whole psychedelic psychiatric paradigm. Psilocybin bears a striking resemblance to LSD and mescaline in its trajectory through time and its meaning to various cultures. These three drugs, but especially LSD and psilocybin, are linked to the formation of the mood and tone of a counterculture. And if it was going to play that part, it would also face the consequences, as psilocybin and LSD were at the center of the social panic of the mid and late 60s. Media outlets running stories of bad trips, psychotic breakdowns, suicides, flashbacks, children under the influence, just as quickly as the world accepted or, or at least tolerated psychedelic substances, it turned its back on them. But, but there is something about psilocybin or shrooms or magic mushrooms or whatever that reverberates in the cultural consciousness. Think about it. Why do mushrooms occupy a space in which most people know generally what you're talking about? How is it that if I talk about San Pedro, for example, at a dinner party, most of the guests will likely ask, well, what's that? While if I talk about shrooms, my grandmother blushes and everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about. How did that happen? Close your eyes. 
unless you're driving, of course, and think about the word shrooms. Why did you think about what you did just then? As we know, history is largely governed by the law of unintended consequences, and as a culture, we typically talk about things on the basis of their consequences. So do you see the connection? What happened in the history of psilocybin? For us to build a cultural identity and myth around it. That's the central question for this episode. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. In 1957, Life magazine published an essay by Gordon Wasson, a retired banker and amateur mycologist. Broadly, a mycologist is someone who studies fungi. Anyway, the article describes, quote, mushrooms that cause strange visions. And it further detailed the Wassons' trip to Iwalta de Jimenez in Oaxaca, Mexico, and of course their trip at Iwalta de Jimenez. Also, you do not misunderstand me. A moment ago, I said the Wassons. That is because Gordon, the man who wrote the article, was accompanied by his wife Valentia and their friend and photographer Alan Richardson. So, for the sake of being clear, I will refer to this party as the Wassons from here on out, and you'll know that I'm referring to Gordon, Valentia, and their friend Alan Richardson. That said, Gordon's essay ultimately bridges the gap between Latin America's indigenous sacraments, academic work on hallucinogenic mushrooms, and the popular perception of what these substances were and did. The essay was the trifecta at the confluence of everything before. And if I wasn't clear, allow me to restate myself, psilocybin is the psychoactive substance in certain mushrooms. Psilocybin itself is not the name of the mushroom. Psilocybin is the substance, the psychoactive, the hallucinogenic substance within the mushroom, just as mescaline was the psychoactive substance within the peyote and San Pedro cacti. Now, of course, Gordon Wasson was a popularizer, and as a popularizer, he stood on a whole canon of work that came before him. Wasson himself noted this canon of work by writing, quote, in the fall of 1952, we learn that the 16th century writers had recorded that certain mushrooms played a divinatory role in the religion of the native. Simultaneously, we learned that certain pre-Columbian stone artifacts resembling mushrooms had been turning up, usually in the highlands of Guatemala, in increasing numbers. So, like the child in the emperor's new clothes, we spoke up, declaring that the so-called mushroom stones really represented mushrooms and that they were the symbol of a religion. There you have it, folks. Wasson made a claim based on the evidence present. Gordon Wasson did not try to pawn off his study and his experience as novel or sell his insights as revolutionary. Now, I only mention that because some of the people we look at later in the episode did not extend the same courtesy. Some blew off the whole canon of work 
believing rather that their own insights should be the basis of the study of psychedelics. Now, curious about what kinds of mushrooms were sacred, what their effects were, and why they held such an esteemed position, the Wassons set off to Central America. And again, using the wealth of pre-existing research and commentary, the Wassons knew that when it came to finding mushrooms, all roads led to Huaxaca, and specifically, Hualta de Jimenez. And they arrived there in 1953. However, the trip was only starting. And no, that wasn't a pun. It would be two years before the Wasson party was permitted to take part in a mushroom ritual. Two years. First, they had to earn the trust of the townspeople, and specifically a curandera named Maria Sabina. So the questions arise. What's a curandera? Who is Maria Sabina? And what makes her and that position of curandera so important that the Wassons have to earn her trust and take two years to do it? To answer those questions, I must first pose a question. What is the purpose? What is the point of medical care? What is the purpose of seeking out a medical practitioner? I'll give you a hint. Typically, healing or prevention is an explicit purpose, both of which have to do with your body and mind's well-being. So the central purpose of medical care is our well-being, our lives, our health, which if we let that decline too much, well, we can stop worrying about it because we'll cease existing. You'll die. So at base, the implications of medical care have something to do with our very existence and being, life and death, which are two states that come prepackaged with ideas and beliefs, often originating from spirituality or religion. And there is a difference. Spirituality typically refers to an individual's feeling of being connected to something larger. Perhaps it's not an omnipotent being, but a collective unconscious, or a higher interconnected force in the universe. There are many, and we have all heard of a few. A spiritual person may attend their church, temple, mosque, or synagogue. However, they may instead focus on a personal connection with some higher power. Spirituality is broad. Religion tends to be more particular. Religion refers to a system of belief or worship, a system of pursuit of something of extreme importance. And that importance can be real or totally imagined. Does not matter. Either of these faith-based systems play on many people's relationships with life and death. Don't believe me? How often does someone ask you to pray for so-and-so's speedy recovery? How often have we given thoughts and prayers for someone undergoing a medical treatment or illness? How many comment sections on Facebook have you seen flooded with prayer hands emojis? Medicine, spirituality, and religion are closely linked in this regard. If the treatment goes off without a hitch... You had skilled doctors, and you can believe your prayers were answered, and perhaps they were. If, however, there were complications 
or the person's health declined quickly, you are left not only confused, but perhaps you begin blaming the system. The care that the person received was not adequate. You go through a crisis, a crisis of faith, perhaps. Eventually, you may even reach the conclusion that the tragedy you have gone through was the will of a higher being, and that may bring you some solace. So why do I mention any of this? In preparing for this episode, I read a study in which 3,728 Latinos 18 years or older residing in the United States were asked a series of questions. They are as follows. Have you ever prayed for healing? Yes or no? Have you ever asked others to pray for healing? Yes or no? Do you consider spiritual healing important? Very, somewhat, or not important? Have you ever consulted a Kirindero, yes or no? The survey also asked an open-ended question about the subject's feelings regarding their last doctor's visit. So, what are the results? 60% of participants reported that they had prayed for healing. 69% considered spiritual healing very important, while 6% reported consulting a Kirindero. Now, of course, I simplified the study, but you can read more about it after looking at the episode's notes. The um, link to the study is in there. Yet, the fact remains, prayer, religion, and spirituality play a definitive role in medicine, at least in regards to the study's research pool, whose heritage, I might add, is all tangled up in this episode. More than just percentages, the study seemed to hint at a correlation between an individual's dissatisfaction with their last doctor's visit and their consulting a Kirindero. And a Kirindero, by the way, is a folk healer in the Latin American mode. So we understand that a majority of participants in the study viewed spiritual healing as important, but they wouldn't seek it out in some form of a folk healer, a Kirindero, unless there was at least some dissatisfaction with typical medicine. Essentially, a Kirindero is at the crossroads between religion and medicine. Maria Sabina, a Kirindero, a folk healer in Mexico, just happens to use psilocybin in some of her remedies. Therefore, the use of mushrooms, at least by Sabina, was not cold and clinical, nor was it recreational. The mushrooms administered by Maria Sabina had both therapeutic and spiritual value. The Wassons wanted to take part in one of Sabina's mushroom sacraments. In two years after they arrived in Nualta de Jimenez, Gordon Wasson was allowed to take part in the ceremony. He had much to say about it, and much was quotable. Here's an excerpt from his account, quote, Your body lies in the darkness, heavy as lead, but your spirit seems to soar and leave the hut. What you are seeing and what you are hearing appear as one. The music consumes harmonious shapes, giving visual form of its harmonies. And what you are seeing takes on modalities of music. The music of the spheres, all your senses are similarly affected. The bemushroomed person is poised in space, a disembodied eye, invisible, incorporeal, seeing but not seen. In truth, he is the five senses disembodied all of them keyed up to the height of sensitivity and awareness, all of them blending into one another most strangely until the person, utterly passive, becomes a pure receptor, infinitely delicate, of sensation. 
Wasson's experience is similar to the others we have looked at over the course of this series. That being the case, what gives the shroom more cultural credit than the cactus? And I'm not claiming the answer is something grand or complicated. The mystery could be as simple as availability and geography, or it could be as subjective as cultural taste. Whatever the case, Gordon Wasson continued to make pilgrimages to Mexico, accompanied by a rotating cast of mycologists and anthropologists all wanting to explore the world of mushrooms and mushroom ceremonies. One such cast member was mycologist Roger Heim, who classified the mushroom that Wasson had experimented with as Psilocybe Mexicana. Familiar with Albert Hoffman's work with LSD, Heim cultivated the mushroom Psilocybe Mexicana and sent some to Albert Hoffman to be chemically analyzed. And if you remember anything about Albert Hoffman, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that in order to test the psychoactivity of the mushroom samples he received, Hoffman self-experimented. Here are some of his notes after taking 32 mushrooms. Quote, 30 minutes after taking the mushrooms, the exterior world began to undergo a strange transformation. Everything assumed a Mexican character. As I was perfectly well aware that my knowledge of the Mexican origin of the mushroom would lead me to imagine only Mexican scenery. I tried deliberately to look on my environment as I knew it normally but all voluntary efforts to look at things in their customary forms and colors proved ineffective. Whether my eyes were open or closed, I saw only Mexican motifs and colors. When the doctor supervising the experiment bent over to check my blood pressure, he was transformed into an Aztec priest, and I would not have been astonished if he had drawn an obsidian knife. In spite of the seriousness of the situation, it amused me to see how the Germanic faces of my colleague had acquired a purely Indian expression. At the peak of the intoxication, the rush of interior pictures, mostly abstract motifs, rapidly changed in shape and color, reached such an alarming degree that I feared I would be torn into this whirlpool of form and color and would dissolve. I felt my return to everyday reality to be a happy return from a strange, fantastic, but quite real world to an old familiar home. Hoffman published his study of psilocybin's chemical structure one year after Gordon Wasson's Life article. In the publication, Hoffman observed that the mystery of the wondrous effects of the flesh of the gods was reduced to the mystery of the effects of two crystalline substances, since these effects could not be explained by science either, but can only be described. Again, Hoffman laid some of the groundwork for future study. He found that it was possible to synthesize psilocybin without the mushroom. So there's our timeline. In 1957, Gordon Wasson publishes an article in Life magazine. Life magazine, by the way, if you're not familiar, is a huge cultural magazine in the United States at this time. The article's published in 57. In 58, Hoffman completes his chemical analysis of psilocybin and finds that it's possible to synthesize psilocybin without the mushroom. And with psilocybin no longer confined to the mushroom, but found in pills and tablets, we see that that very apparatus is adapted by a Harvard professor who would use it on 32 inmates of Concord State Prison in a psychological experiment. But more on that later. Now, 
Before dosing prisoners at Concord State Prison, the Harvard professor I was speaking about, Timothy Leary, burst onto the scene two years after Wasson's life article. So we have Wasson's article, Hoffman's chemical analysis, and then Timothy Leary bursting onto the scene in 1960. Timothy Leary and his colleague Richard Alpert, later known as Ram Das, launched the Harvard Psilocybin Project in 1960, was late. By the time Leary published papers on psychedelics, there was a mountain of work in the field. I mean, we've already done two and a half episodes on the topic, and we're just now getting to him. And yet, Leary rarely referenced this work in his own. But even as a latecomer and someone who overlooked the literature, he is remembered as a major figure in psychedelic history. Now, perhaps this is a consequence of being controversial, but as such, what did he do to be controversial? What is his legacy? Is he a visionary? Is he an asshole, a fraudster, a guru? What is he? For many who study this field, there is an easy answer. Timothy Leary played a role in the collapse of the psychiatric psychedelic paradigm, meaning Many believe he helped drive the government's hand in regulating psychedelics. Some argue that he was the chief architect, yet I don't buy in all the way to that line of reasoning. Considering these options, the last part is a little too far for me. Kind of a, kind of a cop-out. Think of it like this. Stating that one person caused the collapse of an entire international field of study is an act of giving one person entirely too much credit. Don't get me wrong, he didn't help matters. He played a role in the collapse, but the idea that Timothy Leary solely caused the collapse and crackdown and was at the center of the whole field is, to use a technical term, bullshit. That argument ignores whole movements and countercultural fads and the political climate of the time. So no, Timothy Leary is not the godfather of psychedelics like some proclaim, nor is he the destroyer of worlds as others make him out to be. The likely answer, which is often the case, is somewhere in the middle. Leary, with the launch of the Harvard Psilocybin Project in 1960, was at the beginning of the end, chronologically, of this happy marriage between the psychiatric establishment and psychedelic drugs. The story runs like this. Timothy Leary is hired by Harvard in 1959. In the summer of 1960, Leary took a vacation to Mexico. And it was there, sitting poolside in Kiernavaca, that he took psilocybin at the recommendation of a colleague. In his 1983 memoir aptly titled Flashbacks, Leary recalled the trip, writing, quote, In the four hours by the pool in Kiernavaca, I learned more about the mind, the brain, and its structure than I did in the preceding 15 as a diligent psychologist. I learned that the brain is an underutilized biocomputer. I learned that normal consciousness is one drop in an ocean of intelligence. That consciousness and intelligence can be systematically expanded. That the brain can be reprogrammed. Imagine that. You give your entire life to a field or a craft or a job, but yet you learn more about that job under the influence of a substance in a few hours than you ever learned before in all your time studying and practicing. What do you do next? 
if you're Timothy Leary, you want to run home and tell everyone how amazing the substance that did this for you is. Some describe it as the single greatest religious experience of their lives. Leary found that all the complex problems of psychology disappeared under the influence of the magic mushroom. He was ecstatic. He, of course, could not wait to share this miracle substance and what he had learned from it with anyone that would listen. I imagine I'd probably feel the same way if I tried something that awoke in me answers to the questions I've thought about for years. Leary reflected on this idea in yet another memoir, 1968's High Priest, writing, Listen! Wake up. You are God. You have the divine plan engraved in a cellular script within you. Listen. Take this sacrament. You'll see. You'll get this revelation. It will change your life. Every word was emphasized with an exclamation point, which is far too many exclamation points if you ask me. And if you're keeping count, Leary wrote three definite memoirs. I say definite because... Some of his other works toe the line to being a memoir, but don't quite jump into full-fledged self-aggrandizement. We have 1968's High Priest, which was about a series of psychedelic experiences Leary had with colleagues. You have 1973's Confessions of a Hope Fiend, which chronicles his imprisonment and subsequent escape. More on that later. And then you have 1983's Flashbacks, which is a more traditional autobiography. And it's here that we pick up with our story at a point that gets interesting. After his trip to Mexico and his trip in Mexico, Leary returned to Harvard, ready to work on psychedelics within the university structure. He seemed ready to play ball and at least work under the guise of actual science. But even then, Leary had what you might call a laissez-faire attitude about procedures and roles. Herbert Kelman, a colleague of Leary's at Harvard, had this to say about his work ethic. I had misgivings about him from the beginning. He would often talk out of the top of his head about things he knew nothing about, like existentialism, and he was telling our students psychology was all a game. It seemed to me a bit cavalier and irresponsible. He was already halfway off the deep end. Like I said, laissez-faire. But what Leary lacked from seemingly not giving a single shit, he had in salesmanship. For example, Leary established a course at Harvard called Experimental Expansion of Consciousness. In it, according to the description in the Harvard course catalog, again, I'm about to quote from the Harvard course catalog, quote, the literature describing internally and externally induced changes in awareness will be reviewed. The basic elements of mystical experiences will be studied cross-culturally. The members of the seminar will participate in experiences with consciousness-expanding methods. In systematic analysis of attention, we paid to the problems of methodology in this area. This seminar will be limited to advanced grad students, admission by consent of the instructor. Allow me to repeat an excerpt from that back to you. Quote, The members of the seminar will participate in experiences with consciousness-expanding methods. They're not talking yoga and meditation. 
This course isn't about following your breath and stretching. This course is taking psychedelic drugs and recording the experiences. Leary got the course approved by the chair of the Department of Psychology, David McClelland. The only caveat was that the course would be restricted to grad students only. Again, allow me to repeat something I just said. It's going to be important. The course was restricted to grad students only. I want you to hold on to that fact, that idea, until later. I promise it's going to pay off. This is like Chekhov. The gun on the mantelpiece will go off in the third act. However, I suppose this story has about three guns on the mantelpiece, if you will. You have prisoners, you have jailbreaks, and you have grad students. So here's your reminder of the three. They're going to pop up and pay off in a few moments. This is good storytelling. Needless to say, experimental expansion of consciousness as a course was an extremely popular one at Harvard, and one that became a source of controversy, while also serving as the launch pad for the Harvard Psilocybin Project. So the point of the Harvard Psilocybin Project, if there was a discernible point, was that if you allow people to use these substances in a naturalistic yet monitored environment, you'd find these substances have a positive life-changing effect, that it would allow people to confront many internal struggles and transcend them. One of the early studies done by the project resulted in Americans and Mushrooms in a Naturalistic Environment, a preliminary report. And if that title sounds like academic business as usual, it wasn't quite that. These early studies in which psilocybin was administered to hundreds of people, including musicians, artists, grad students, academic scholars, Joe Schmoes off the street, you would find people taking psilocybin in living rooms with music and chill lighting. They'd look like a party, and the problem never was that Leary and Alpert were studying psychedelic drugs. The problem was always that they were supposed to monitor and ensure the integrity of their studies. Instead, they were tripping with the participants. You see, bad science in a cavalier attitude is a surefire way to get your ass drummed out of Harvard. However, before we get his ass drummed out of Harvard, we should look at what the Harvard Psilocybin Project actually did. And as writer Michael Pollan put it, it was surprisingly little. Between 1961 and 1963, Timothy Leary directed a study in which 32 inmates of Concord State Prison were given psilocybin-assisted group therapy. Upon release, the recidivism rates of the psilocybin group and the control group were measured. The study was known as the Concord Prison Experiment, and it has been reviewed and criticized over and over since the results were initially reported. Essentially, Leary wanted to see if psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy could do away with repeat offenders, or at least lower the rate at which prisoners would return to prison upon release, and that is what the word recidivism refers to, the tendency of a convicted criminal to reoffend. But let's back up for a second. Not only... Did Leary convince his superiors at Harvard to allow the study? He convinced the warden of a maximum security prison to allow a group of researchers to administer psychedelic drugs to a group of inmates. One of the researchers actually took the drugs with the inmates so the inmates wouldn't feel as Leary described it like guinea pigs. Again, what he lacked due to his cavalier attitude 
he made up for in salesmanship. Now, that point may have been a piece of anachronistic thinking as psychedelics were not illegal at this time. They were freely studied and perhaps this is nothing insane, but at the same time, they still are mind-altering substances and bringing in an outside group into a prison severely disrupts that prison schedule. So it is still an amazing feat outside of the fact that they were using psychedelics, just logistically. Ultimately, the reported results of the exa- of the um, study were, were erroneous, if not eye-catching. They were eye-catching. Leary reported that 80% of the control group returned to prison compared to the 25% in the psilocybin group. The data was, of course, exaggerated. And Leary failed to mention a whole swath of variables in tertiary services outside of the psilocybin therapy. Sidney Cohen, an authority on psychedelic drug use, if there ever was one, said of the study, quote, It was the sort of research that made scientists wince. Now, Leary doesn't seem to have concerned himself with doing actual science. Again, he mostly referred to it as a game, or he did not bother to note the work that had predated him. For example, Leary wrote of his study, quote, We were on our own. Western literature had almost no guides, no maps, no texts that even recognized the existence of altered states. But, as we know, that is wrong. Humphrey Osmond wrote on psychedelics, Albert Hoffman, Gordon Wasson, William James, famously Aldous Huxley wrote The Doors of Perception, so I don't know what the hell Leary meant by being alone. In fact, he was in the company of respected researchers and writers. He wasn't even alone at Harvard. William James studied altered consciousness prior to Leary. But in addition to the Concord prison experiment, we also have this thing called the Good Friday Experiment, in which Leary was not directly involved. Instead, it was directed by Walter Pankey, who was uh, working on his PhD dissertation under Leary. This study at least aimed for a double-blind experiment, at least tried to work under the pretense of real science. It ran like this. 20 students received a capsule during the Good Friday service at Marsh Chapel. Ten capsules had psilocybin, and the other ten had niacin, which creates a tingling sensation. However, some aspects of the study were left out or suppressed, like the fact that one participant had a freakout and had to be sedated. What was the main takeaway from this study? Well, at least from Leary's perspective, it was having to do with control groups while studying psychedelics. He said, quote, If we learned one thing from that experience, again referring to the miracle at Marsh Chapel as it has since been called, it was how foolish it was to use a double-blind experiment with psychedelics. After five minutes, no one's fooling anyone. And this is part and parcel of the fact that Timothy Leary was disenfranchised by what he considered a stifling system at Harvard. And their relationship from there became only more estranged. Harvard's Department of Psychology's website has a short bio about Timothy Leary and his time at Harvard. In it, they describe the firing of Leary as such, quote, By 1962, various faculty members and the administrators at Harvard were concerned 
about the safety of Leary and Alpert's research subjects and critiqued the rigor of their unorthodox methodology. In particular, the researchers conducted their investigations when they too were under the influence of psilocybin. Leary and Alpert's colleagues challenged the scientific merit of their research as well as the seemingly cavalier attitude with which it was carried out, e.g. poorly controlled conditions, non-random selection of subjects. Editorials printed in the Harvard Crimson accused Alpert and Leary of not merely researching psychotropic drugs, but actively promoting their recreational use. The reason I shared that is it was a rather succinct way of describing the events, and also it serves as the institution's perspective on the events, at least publicly. It's their website, after all. However, in the pursuit of brevity, there seems to have been a few key moments and ideas left out of the controversy, and I'd like to fill them in. For the first couple of years of Leary's work with psychedelics, from about 1960 to early, early, I'm talking January 1962, questions and concerns never left Harvard's campus. That, of course, changed. It was March 1962 when the Department of Psychology at Harvard called a meeting for faculty and students to air out any concerns they might have with the psilocybin project. Needless to say, there were a few. Herb Kelman, a faculty member at Harvard, had this to say at the March meeting, quote, I wish I could treat this as a scholarly disagreement, but this work violates the values of the academic community. The whole program has an anti-intellectual atmosphere. Its emphasis is on pure experience, not on verbalizing findings. I'm also sorry to say that Dr. Leary and Dr. Alpert have taken a very nonchalant attitude towards these experiments, especially considering the effects these drugs might have on the subjects. What most concerns me and others who have come to me is how the hallucinogenic and mental effects of these drugs have been used to form a kind of insider sect within the department. Those who choose not to participate are labeled as squares. I just don't think that kind of thing should be encouraged in this department. Of course, the popularity of the project on campus in the affiliated course Experimental Expansion of Consciousness led to this meeting where the grievances were aired to be jam-packed. To the rafters, as they say, and one person in attendance was named Robert Ellis Smith, who wrote for Harvard's paper The Crimson. The next day, the headline, Psychologists Disagree on Psilocybin Research, was on the paper. The day after that, the Boston Herald picks up the story, but with a new headline. Hallucination drug fought at Harvard. 350 students take pills. And as you can imagine, the snowball effect had begun. But Leary and Alpert still had jobs at Harvard for another year. They established a new organization for them to research psychedelics called the International Federation of Internal Freedom, the IFIF, if if. And by 1963... Leary went from not giving a shit about Harvard to not giving two shits about Harvard, going as far to skip classes and disparage his opponents in the press. 
Leary was let go that year under the pretense of not showing up to class and fulfilling his contract, and Alpert was fired for providing psilocybin to undergraduates. That one requirement that they couldn't break. Again, you know, I said the gun was going to go off in the mantelpiece. Well, there it was. It was a near... It was a near simultaneous kind of deal, fueled by an article in the Crimson, reported by an undergraduate student named Andrew Weil, who actually started a mescaline group on campus. You see, Weil reported this story of undergraduates getting psilocybin from Alpert, not because Weil disapproved of the drugs or undergraduates taking them. It was that some undergraduate students got the drugs, but he didn't. So when the story came out in the Crimson, the psilocybin project was shut down, and Leary and Alport no longer had careers at Harvard. However, they continued their research under patronage from heirs to the Mellon Fortune out of a 64-room mansion in Millbrook, New York. Leary wrote of this period, quote, We saw ourselves as anthropologists from the 21st century inhabiting a time module set somewhere in the dark ages of the 1960s. On this space colony, we were attempting to create a new paganism and a new dedication to life as art. And this work at Millbrook was a launchpad to his status as a countercultural icon, brushing shoulders with beat poets like Allen Ginsberg and musicians like John Lennon and Mick Jagger and whatnot, but... As a countercultural icon, he was arrested in 1965, coming back from a family vacation in Mexico under possession of marijuana. It was actually his daughter Susan's, but he claimed responsibility. Leary ultimately appealed and beat the case. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, which on May 19, 1969, overturned the law that allowed for Leary's arrest, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. They found that it was a violation of of the Fifth Amendment. Upon this victory, Leary subsequently ran for governor of California against Ronald Reagan. His campaign slogan was, Come together, join the party. He asked John Lennon to write his campaign song, Perhaps You Heard It Before. And this victory at the Supreme Court and this run for governor, it bolstered Timothy Leary to the heights of his fame. But it was short-lived, as he had another looming marijuana charge, this one from 1968. And of course, Congress ultimately replaced the Marijuana Tax Act with the Controlled Substances Act. So it's January 21st, 1970. The hope and excitement of the counterculture gave way to bitter skepticism, and Timothy Leary was sentenced to 10 years in prison for his 1968 possession charge. By September of that year, he busted out of prison. He climbed along a telephone wire over the walls, landed into a truck where he was smuggled out by a militia group called Weather Underground, who then smuggled Leary and his wife Rosemary out of the country. From there, Leary had come under the watch of Eldridge Cleaver and some Black Panthers in Algeria, but when they revoked his passport, he fled to Switzerland where he came under the care of an arms dealer but even then he was eventually extradited back to the United States as Nixon's attorney general negotiated an extradition deal, and he ultimately served a five-year prison sentence in Folsom Prison. His cellmate was none other than Charles Manson, 
believe it or not. But Leary ultimately reduced his prison sentence by trading information on Weather Underground to the FBI. Leary later wrote of this that he wrote to Weather Underground, stating that he was thinking of making a deal with the FBI and wanted their approval, and apparently they wrote back and said they understand. However, there's no reports of any members of the Weather Underground or the Weathermen noticing that this happened, but who's to say? By 1976, Leary was out after three years served, and that's where I think we'll end our surreal chronicle of Timothy Leary. Post-prison, he never returned to his countercultural icon heights, but that doesn't mean he had no effect on society. He still toured and gave lecture tours as a stand-up philosopher, or as uh, Mel Brooks put it, a bullshitter, right? And um, Tom Wolfe, in the book The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, described Leary's greatest contribution to psychedelics. Quote, the set was the set of your mind. You should prepare for the experience by meditating upon the state of your being and deciding what you would hope to discover or achieve on this voyage into the self. You should also have a guide who has taken LSD himself and is familiar with the various stages of the experience and whom you know and trust. The idea that Tom Wolfe is describing is set and setting. And while it may be the greatest contribution Leary made to the field, it was in fact first mentioned by our old friend Al Hubbard. And for Timothy Leary, I suppose that's fitting. Now this episode is by no means a comprehensive study of psilocybin, nor is it a comprehensive study of researchers or theorists around psilocybin. Unfortunately, it was mostly tied up with Timothy Leary and the Harvard Psilocybin Project. This is, of course, a consequence of the controversy surrounding both Leary and the project, and that controversy looming so large over the field. Plus, I felt as though there were many misconceptions around Timothy Leary and his place in this history, and it's the job of Dirty History to attempt to shed a little bit of light and bring a conversation to those misconceptions. There are many individuals who have made significant contributions to the field that did not receive focus. People like Terence McKenna or someone like Alan Watts, who was tangentially involved in the mood and spirit. Richard Alpert, for example, made a pilgrimage to India where he became known as Ram Das. However, it all cracked up. Psychedelics were placed as Schedule One drugs on the CSA, which was enforced under the War on Drugs that Richard Nixon spoke about, if you remember back to the first episode in the series. It wasn't until 2000, when Johns Hopkins University received approval to begin study with psychedelics, and unlike the Harvard Psilocybin Project, the endeavor was fruitful and long-running. It's still going on today. As of my recording this, the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research has put out more than 60 peer-reviewed articles in scientific journals. They have a website. You can go check it out if you're interested, but... As regulatory approval becomes easier to come by and more states lax their laws on medical and recreational marijuana, perhaps another research renaissance for mind-altering substances is upon us. Sitting here recording the episode, I wonder exactly 
what was this topic? What were these substances? And to me, they're a big asterisk on the war on drugs. Substances like this that have so many if, ands, or buts attached to the legislation, you have to wonder if it's worth legislating at all. You could bring weed into this category if you, if you want, but you have to ask yourself, what is the end game here? Is it responsible to just legalize these substances willy-nilly for recreational use? Is that too far? Where do the benefits lie? In medicine, in psychiatry, spirituality, therapy? I don't have all the answers. There's so many possibilities that don't end up with a dependency problem. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this has been Dirty History. And if you like what you heard here, I can proudly say that this show was produced by Muckraker Media, which means that I could recommend to you other shows on the Muckraker Media platform. So if you like what you heard here, you can get similar stimulating content on Plato's Cave, Mind Theater, That's BS, and Work in Progress. Those are other Muckraker Media podcasts. You can find out more on muckrakermedia.org or subscribe to our Muckraker Media RSS feed where you can get samplings of all of our content plus exclusive Muckraker Media episodes wherever you get podcasts. As always, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Dirty History. And if you're truly feeling frisky, support what we do on Patreon. It would mean a lot. $1, $2, whatever you can scrounge up. But I know these are tough times, and I appreciate it more than anything. We're on all the social medias. You can find us at Dirty History Pod or Muckraker Media. Wherever you can make an account, we're on it. So thank you again for listening. I'm Thomas Thompson. And this has been Dirty History. I'll talk to you soon.